and welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. I'm Greg Roche. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing and possibly ranting slightly about procurement. Hmm, interesting for a customer satisfaction podcast. Why are we talking about procurement today? Yeah, well, I do think, uh, as we'll see as we go through, I think there are a lot of links. And some of it is probably... Uh, slightly bruising personal experiences <laughs> that we've had but honestly I think there is a wider point here so I I think when it comes to business to business relationships between organizations procurement is the the beginning if you like of that relationship um or whether it should be is a question we'll come back to uh, but yeah procurement is kind of what sets that relationship up and therefore it's where a lot of the a lot of the good and bad things about that relationship as it evolves start with that procurement, uh, however it works. Okay, well, tell us about some of the good and bad things for the procurement process for a modern day supplier. I think we've all been bruised by <laughs> procurement in our time. Yeah, well, I think let's, should we start with the bad? Because <laughs> that's quite easy, isn't it? I want to make it clear, this is not because I think procurement people are bad or evil or, you know, I understand why procurement is necessary. Um, as we'll touch on probably later on, in many ways, I think we as suppliers have brought this on ourselves. Um, so, you know, it's not a case of pointing a finger or, or blaming people. I guess what I'm calling for is for it to work better for everyone. And I think there are ways it could work better for everyone. So the problem at the moment, in my view, well, there are a few problems, but it's it's very easy for kind of tendering exercises for procurement processes to try to commoditize everything. So we want to buy, you know, 10 widgets and they have to be of a certain quality we'll specify you know the materials they're made out of sometimes even the country they're made in and you know the the sort of specific concrete characteristics of the thing we're buying and then we'll buy the best value which is not necessarily the cheapest but often is the cheapest uh, and that's great and i would argue that that approach to procurement works very well for bricks slightly less well for complicated you know engineering structural projects and not at all well for market research why because bricks are fairly easy to specify to be of a certain quality and size and weight and then you can buy them on price complex engineering projects are sort of possible to do that with particularly if you perhaps give points for um, experience and you know expertise in, in that particular industry and so on whereas i think market research you're buying something so so intangible that most of the value is not in the stuff that you can easily measure. For example, a, a, you know, a telephone interview, in a way it's it's a commodity. So if we try and pin it down and we can talk about how easy this is in a moment, but if you say, I, I want a thousand telephone interviews, what's that gonna cost me? You and I would say, well, okay, we need to think about you know exactly what we're talking about here. So how long is that telephone interview? What's the hit rate going to be? What kind of customers are we talking to? Dot, dot, dot. There's a whole load of information that, that helps us turn that into sort of a commodity. And yet the truth is, when it comes to actually writing a proposal, there's always a little bit of uncertainty. We, we go into that with a lot of experience and a lot of information often, and still kind of guessing how much money are we going to make on this? We're probably not going to lose money. We're probably not going to make very much money. Uh, we're probably okay-ish is usually how we feel. And the reason for that is because it isn't a commodity. Even something that seems as simple as a five-minute telephone interview in a particular market isn't actually a commodity. 
Um, and the quality will vary between suppliers as well in a way that is difficult, I think, for a procurement process to measure. So to challenge back a, a, a bit on that, what a, I could see an angle where you know, the research industry might want it to remain intangible because if it's unmeasurable and intangible, that's a good, you know, we can make some money there, we can do this, we can do that, we can't be pinned down. Why is the research bit intangible? Why can't that be turned into some tangible things? I think it can be. So you know, ultimately, if we're getting right down to the brass tacks of it, and, and one of the points I want to make is that I think most of what we do is not the interviewing, really. And that, that kind of is commoditizable, whereas I don't think the insight is, which we'll come back to. But in terms of just the interview part of it, the thing that really governs what it costs us is the number of interviews we can do an hour because the main variable for us is what we're paying our interviewer. So in some ways, if we can define precisely, we are going to get two and a half of these an hour. We know exactly what we can charge you and still make any money. So yes, if we know that precisely, then it, it, it does, if you like, it becomes a, a known quantity. It's still not a commodity, I don't think, because our interviewers are good quality interviewers and, and you know, lots of research agencies have good quality interviewers some don't and I think that's an interesting uh, question for the procurement process you know okay let's say we can establish for whatever is we're going to go precisely 2.5 an hour okay I know what to cost this interview at for us so that we're not going to lose money what if I'm being undercut over here by a company that doesn't pay its interviewers as well or doesn't have such good interviewers so you're gonna get a cheaper your thousand interviews interviews rather will cost less money from you know yeah. cheap and basic research limited over here and the scores will look the same they may not be in various ways quite as good and your comments will be noticeably less good because their interviewers aren't as good yeah how did you know that at the procurement stage yeah i, I can see what you're saying there i'm still going to come back on a couple of things but just in terms of only once I can think of in my 20 years, and it was a pretty large contract, did the procurement, no, actually twice, did they come and visit our officers and want to meet the interviewers? And you think that's a really important part. If you are saying, you know, because you're entrusting us with your customers mm. and, you know, they can look at systems and forms and, yes, we have this system, yes, we have this standard, yes, we won this award, yes, we've done that. But I did think it was quite enlightened procurement to say, I want to check the quality of the people. I want to meet them because they're going to be talking to our customers. I don't want to talk to you fine salespeople who always put a positive <laughs> angle on everything. I want to meet the actual people who will be doing the interviews. And I thought that was pretty enlightened procurement. Just in terms of this intangible bit, do you think it's because ultimately, as opposed to a brick, what we're selling is time and knowledge yeah, absolutely, yeah. So if something takes longer, it's going to cost more. And if it requires someone with a higher skill level, it's going to cost more. So what I tend to find is you're trying to take what someone wants and turn that into, okay, how long is that going to take someone to do? And what skills does the person need who's going to do that and if it's a quick job that can be done at a a fairly basic level that's quite cheap if it's a long job that's going to be done by someone who's got a unique skill set that's going to be really really expensive yeah and no, i think that's that's exactly right i think you know to come back to my concerns about procurement i think the result what what suppliers have learned to do in most industries i think 
is when they find themselves in a sort of competitive tender type process, they, and to some extent, this is now bleeding into, into uh, sort of procurement in general, I think, is you have, if you like, your commodity, the commodity version of what you do. So you, you strip it right down to, you know, the very, very basics. Bronze standard. <laughs> yeah, well, and we tend to, we often call it bronze, silver, gold, don't we? And what, what you end up doing is saying, this is, this will do the job. We've stripped out all the costs that we can so that we look good value, but this will just about do the job. And then worry that you're going up against people who are buying business or not sticking to a decent level of quality or, you know, in whatever other way undercutting you. But then what I suspect is that what, what um, clients would often actually want is better than that, a silver or a gold standard. And this is something we see with our B2B clients quite often coming through in the customer satisfaction surveys that we do with their customers. People saying things like, what I want is I want them coming to me with ideas and being proactive and suggesting, you know, solutions. Latest thinking and stuff like that. And we'll tell our clients this and our clients will say, but we'd love to do that, but we can't afford to because they've screwed us right down in the procurement. We're doing absolutely everything we can afford to do. Isn't that then the mismatch between the specification of what procurement have bought and what perhaps the research department wants or the organisation want. And that's not saying that procurement's right or wrong. It might be procurement is right and this is what we're buying. But the internal customer then who who picks that up needs to be aware of this is what we've bought as an organisation. We bought bronze, not gold. Yeah. The trap, though, I think, is that it's what... And this is actually, this is a wider rant I could go on at some point. But I sense that, Stephen. <laughs> in business and society and life, I think we tend to be governed by the things that are easy to measure, whether or not they're, they're the most important things, because they're easy to measure. So a thousand interviews is easy to measure. It isn't easy to measure quality of insight or you know proactivity of account management. So that doesn't get given any weighting in a tendering exercise. Yeah. If, if, if we think over the years, some of the actionable insight that we've come up with, that really is the things that have changed businesses and, you know, changed our clients. And it's, as you were talking at the beginning, uh, you know, about the bricks, I'm thinking, well, can't you make a tangible output saying, you know, I want in, I want actionable insight as an outcome, and I define actionable insight as something that's going to raise our customer satisfaction levels by 5%. Or, or spend by 2% and, and to try and make the intangible tangible. I think and the only way you could really do that is, and I, I think it's a nice idea, the, the trap, I think, is that that kind of outcome-based uh, assessment of stuff like that is something we've always been a bit uh, wary of, is marking our own homework. And I think you'd very quickly end up in that kind of world. So for example, if you said to a potential client, you know, we'll link our reward to you improving your customer satisfaction score um, next year, I that creates quite a lot of perverse incentives for all concerned, doesn't it? There's a, there's a big loss of independence there, isn't yeah. there? However honest and truthful we are, people exactly. are. Yeah, and I, well, I think it, let's assume that we are ethical and we wouldn't lie but but what i always think the thing with and this is true of, of you know anytime you link reward to satisfaction or targets or you know, even targets rather than reward when you create perverse incentives people don't as a rule lie they, they don't say i'm going to make up 
a score here, but it slightly affects all the little decisions in such a way that adds up yeah. to a bias. Yeah, there's a good uh, there's a good webinar called Gaming, uh, uh, which which sort of shows that the people don't do the wrong thing; they just don't quite do the right thing how you want. An accumulation of that, <laughs> it, you know, is not great. So, do you think procurement are getting the best results for their organisation? Because I think they would argue, hey, you know, we're set out to save money. We are saving money. It's just the organization asks us to save money, but then really doesn't want to save money when it engages the supplier. Because yeah. I think just going a, a little bit on the costing model, I bet there's a lot of organizations take a little bit of the view as to, okay, let's strip it back. Let's go in at bronze. And if they do want anything else, we will obviously then have to charge because that's the agreement we've set up with procurement. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely think that is the reason. So, again, I don't blame procurement people. You could argue in a way that it, in just the same way that any salesperson, the starting point is I've got to invoice at least my cost of employment. <laughs> otherwise, I'm going to be in trouble. Any buyer's starting point is always I've got to save at least my cost of employment. Otherwise, you know, why am I here? So their starting point has to, in the same way that a salesperson's starting point is how do I sell more? A buyer's starting point is likely to be how do I save more? And that's that's fair and understandable. And on top of that, the the organization is explicitly tasking them with saving money often yeah now they probably don't say that what they probably say is finding best value or words to that effect and sometimes when you get into a tendering process the you know the the money waiting is made explicit and at other times it isn't made explicit it's usually a big part of the waiting i think that would be it's a fair a part of, of of it it is usually the largest component of the waiting when certainly when it's made explicit it's almost it's almost always pretty high let's say yeah but isn't that then the procurement saying this is what we want to buy as an organization and actually you know it's you know we are saving money and the fact that who has ever picking this up the research department the fact they start asking for x y and z they shouldn't be asking for x y and z because it wasn't needed it wasn't specified if it had been specified we'd have put it in there but it wasn't so actually procurement are doing their job properly saving the organization money it's the research department who the specification they gave to procurement is wrong i think that's a bit true so i think that there's two aspects of that which i, I want to kind of talk about so let, let's shelve the uh, specification for a moment because i think that's an interesting one to, to break out a bit more the other thing i would say in response to that is if tendering exercises really worked it wouldn't be so common and i'd say this is quite common for a massive tendering exercise for a three-year contract to happen and then a year later another massive tendering exercise for a three-year contract to happen because they weren't happy with the supplier they selected the first time around so i would argue that, that is a waste of time and effort yeah, for all concerned yeah, never agree with that and it is not uncommon is it no no it's uh, and i think one of the things that procurement exercise takes a lot of time on for everyone on all sides of it and given that we are all employed and we're all selling time that's that's often even what what one of the little things you think about is it worth putting our time in to win this you know and the, we would have numerous examples where you just think oh, it's not worth me going for it the amount of time i'd have to spend in the procurement even if successful you know would it make this job worthwhile it does put us off tendering for some work that's that's unquestionably true let's go back to the idea of this like how well the work is specified by 
I mean, we make it very about us, and I, and I think I want to make this a wider discussion. So, like the, the let's say the, the the client department, whoever they are, how how they specify their need to procurement to go through that kind of tendering exercise. I think that is is at least a bit true. One of the problems is that people put their effort in at the wrong place. So I I think quite often the the department with a need won't spend enough effort defining that need before they go to a tendering process. So what often comes to you as a supplier is a solution that's already been decided upon, but not properly thought through. So it will say, we need a thousand telephone interviews or whatever else, but it won't say what I believe would be better is, is actually a more, in a way a more convoluted process of defining what the need really is. Um, and that's one of the things that I think a good supplier can bring to a client is helping them to define their need. Like, tell us what your business need is and we'll help you to find the right way to meet that need. See, that would be really interesting at a pre-stage just to have that initial conversation with a few organisations saying, here's our need, because I think the internal client i guess they fall into the trap of let's make this really tangible because procurement want to know black and white what do we want so we want this many interviews with this amount of stuff or or, or whatever products they're you know they're buying they make what they want tangible when a lot of probably what they want is intangible well that's a really interesting um approach in terms of perhaps saying here's our need why don't we engage with two or three people and ask them to come up with at the moment theoretical solutions as to what to be the best way of doing that. And then we can write um, a specification. One of our old, because that way you're building on people's expertise. Uh, and one of one of our former colleagues, Jim Alexander, who, who definitely deserves a mention in a lot of what we do, he, he once made the point, you wouldn't go to the doctors and tell them how to operate on you. You, mm. you would tell them the problem and then let their expertise decide. And you might go second opinion at another doctor but you wouldn't say, this is what I want you to do. I want you to cut down here with this instrument and do it in this time, uh, you know, uh, you know, and that will stop the pain. Yeah, and this is a slight tangent run, but part of the problem, I think, is that people don't understand research as a science. They see it as an art. And yeah, everyone thinks yeah. they can do all the arts. Well, so we could all write a questionnaire. We could all write a Hollywood film. We could all write a novel if we chose to. We could all write a best-selling album. You know, we, we can tell Ed Sheeran why he's, you know, not great at writing songs. <laughs> but we wouldn't tell an engineer how to build a bridge. And it, we, we have this slightly weird view, I think, that anything in the arts we could do, anything in the sciences, is for clever expert people. And research doesn't count for some reason yeah that's an interesting that's an interesting angle i i often tell football players and rugby players how they could do it better (laughs) run faster that's right (laughs) (laughs) so you've had a few rants let's just do some of the strengths of a decent procurement um, system you've talked before about understanding your client's client How, how just expand a little bit on on that and how that would sort of fit into procurement in a lot of cases in probably almost all cases in a b2b relationship there is some kind of customer at the you know third degree customer at the end of it so it, it tends to be b2b to c or b2b to b or b2b to b2b to b to c or whatever um these complicated chains but somewhere at the end of that is an end user or a customer or someone who's getting the final actual thing and what's interesting about that i think is if you are in a b2b relationship should you be focused on your customer or should you be focused on your customer's customer and helping your customer to do the best job for their customer 
really, I think that's saying the same thing. So I think really, if you're focused on your customer, good customer experience, and actually one of the things that for me distinguishes the idea of customer experience from customer service is that it is about yeah, what you're helping your really customer point, to do. Yeah. So it's not, I'm responding quickly to my emails. Yeah. It's what am I helping you to do? And one of those things is make think, your own customer. And that's happier. often a, even a big learning point for the organization, isn't it? Because part of the challenge initially is sometimes getting them to think about their customers. So to actually then move them to the next stage of saying, well, actually, get us thinking about your customers, get your supply chain thinking about your customers. You don't have to just do that by yourself. It's about us all making your next customer <laughs> um, happy. And perhaps your role is thinking about your customer's customer, the second step down the line again. Ultimately, you know, to sort of bring it back to what I mentioned at the beginning, I, I think the reason procurement is important, I think, is because it's about relationships. And, you know, we've talked about yeah, your customer's customer is, is part of getting that relationship working really healthily. The, the opportunity to help your client shape the right answer for them. So the opportunity to influence what, what work actually gets done from a very early stage. Those are both things that are, are to me, symptoms of a really healthy, we talk about partnerships a lot, don't we? That kind of partnership relationship, where it's win-win. It's like, we're making more money than we would do if we were in a sort of commodity relationship, but you're making more money and you're you know, getting more what you want from us as well. And um, so for me, that's a really healthy One of the best be in. depth interviews I did, um, in, it was so enlightening. I got to interview the head buyer at Marks and Spencers, the head buyer at Marks and Spencers a few years ago. And it, it was on behalf of a haulage company. And this guy, he was fantastic. And he talked about partnerships. And he said, the I, everyone talks about partnerships, but people don't understand what a partnership is. Partnership means transparency and understanding where the strength and the relationship is. So everyone, he says, defaults to partnership is 50-50. You know, it's a win-win for both of us. Well, it's not like that. In most partnerships, you know, you would expect the supplier to, ha to have the upper hand. So it might be 75-25. And that's fine if everyone understands that it's 75-25 and all the people in that understand that. But sometimes during the relationship, do you know what? The boot will be on the other foot because the supplier will be needed more or there'll be something like that. And it might actually go 60, 40 the other way for a little bit. And he was just describing it like any relationship you have. And he said, but the secret is everyone knowing that that 75, 25 has now changed to 60, 40. And not getting all personal about it, but the transparency and understanding that everyone at the table is on the same page with that. And you've not got someone thinking it's 50-50, someone thinking it's 80-20, and someone thinking it's 20-80. All that misunderstanding is where partnerships and business relationships fail. And he was talking at a much higher level. And I found it. At, uh, and when he says it, you just think, that's dead right. You can see, if you think of all the times things and relationships have failed, it is that misunderstanding of how the seesaw um, is balanced. Yeah. And I, I do think there's a big argument for a supplier to think about, do we want to work under these conditions? So you talked about, do, do, we, do we even bother tendering for this? I think sometimes with a current client, suppliers to be better off firing <laughs> the customer is it is a is, is this kind of idea from the early 2000s but I, I think thinking actually this isn't 
this isn't good for either. This is not a win-win relationship. You know, we're, we're not enjoying working on this. Usually that means the client isn't enjoying it either. You, it, it tends to just not be working very well. And I think probably, it's very difficult to do in practice, but probably more suppliers would be better off getting out of those relationships yeah, that no one's enjoying. More so recently uh, as well, where it isn't just about money and the balance sheet you know do you want to put staff in a position of dealing with people putting them under undue stress and pressure no you don't Mm -hmm. you don't that's not a good business model let alone a fair and humane thing to do and that comes more into into people's sort of mind mindset can i just go back to something you said really early on have suppliers bought this onto themselves do you think You, you sort of hinted that perhaps they have at least to an extent yeah so and i think if you again let's broaden it out from just sort of our world but if if you think you know why why are tendering processes so careful to specify you must use this type of steel in your girders or you know all, all the kind of nuts and bolts of the detail is because people have not always been very honest about about you know they might imply that their girders are top quality girders but actually they're not top quality girders and then the building falls down so i, I think if you like sort of sharp practice that originally a lot of these more technical tenders were built to prevent you know to make sure they weren't being conned effectively and that's absolutely you know i'm glad that the buildings i'm walking around aren't going to fall down because someone has made sure that the steel in the girders is the right kind of steel that's a good thing for society so that's absolutely a good thing and suppliers made that necessary by not acting properly and ethically i think on a less kind of serious note the way we sell in general in b2b is not very good (laughs) as a rule so i'm reading a book at the moment uh, which is called no forms no spam no cold calls which is not actually a very good book i don't think but 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 i think that basic premise of b2b marketing and sales is fundamentally an awful experience for for the client just say that again no forms no forms, no no spam no cold calls and the, the idea is don't hide content that a prospect wants to get to behind a form where they have to fee- give you their information once you've got their information yeah. don't deluge them with spam about stuff they don't care about and don't deluge them with phone calls trying to sell them something when they're not in a position to buy or they don't want to buy or, or whatever else and i think those are three good principles even if i don't quite agree with the rest of the book which is basically selling a particular te- technical solution to that but i think that that premise that the way we're we generally as b2b suppliers are selling our services is pretty obnoxious i think that's a lot of what's driven people to go what stop trying to sell me your stuff and and stop hiding the information i need to know in order to decide on a supplier uh, away you know what what does your stuff cost why can i not find anything on your website that tells me what this is going to cost without sending someone an email that's ridiculous that's a good point. That's a good point. and yet it's sort of common practice so yeah in many ways i think we suppliers in general have brought that on ourselves by being so irritating you you make a good you you make a good point there don't you in in terms of the sort of just going back to some of the procurement process i i think again one of the most underutilized things is, is perhaps references 
because in terms of understanding, and, and it's like the references everyone puts on the CV, and you know, you 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 put a friend's colleague on, don't you, or something like that. You don't put someone who's going to give you a bad reference on there. But I think in terms of asking for a reference about adding value or insight or more the intangibles is perhaps where I think references should be aimed at than the tangible bits because if you've agreed you do want it added value and insight and it'll make a difference let's talk to someone who you've done that for not someone who says yes they can do 1000 telephone interviews or supply bricks to the right standard and I think the way in which it's done as well in B2B it is about the relationship isn't it and having shared vision and shared goal and working together in a collaborative manner and that's ultimately what means relationships last or don't last. So, again, I think things like that are worth investing time to understand. Is this a company? Do I like the way they do things? Because fundamentally, they're not going to change. And this is both ways, isn't it? They're going to operate in this way. Is that a way that brings the best out of both parties? Or ultimately, will it just end up in, in a fractious relationship? It, it does, as you say, come back to relationships. And it's odd. I don't quite know why it is. But it is the case that some organisations work well with some other organisations and just don't work well with a, you know, a third organisation. You know, the, the cultures fit or don't fit in, in much the same way, I guess, that personalities fit or don't fit. I guess you could analyse personality types or culture types and see what was a good or a bad fit. But I don't know, often it's not very predictable at least not to me, and I've certainly seen surprises both ways over the years. One thing I do think is that the early days of the relationship can set it up to succeed or set it up to fail. Um, <laughs> I can sound like a marriage counsellor again, <laughs> but I do, I do think like things can get off on a, on a good foot or a bad foot, and it makes it a little, it's very difficult to get it back. You know, if there's any sort of mutual suspicion or... Uh, it just it just gets to a place. I always think a really good telltale from. sign is, I mean, presumably we've gone through procurement here and, and, and sort of sort of won the job. But actually, if you take a step back, is where a client says, "Let me tell you about our organisation," but let me really tell you about our organisation. The unwritten ground rules, not we're this size, we do this with these customers, and we've been go, you know, we were founded on this day by this person. This is what we're trying to deliver to our customers. This is how we're doing it. This is the culture in which we do it. And automatically, if I see when we've won a job, you know, if you see that in the kickoff, you think this is going to be great. They want me to understand them to help them. But actually, if you take it one stage back, you know, you know, when you see that in a procurement document, you go, hey, this is great. When you don't see that in a procurement document, that's all perhaps just adds to the intangibles that are already there and you is making the intangibles a bit more like oh, are we going to get on with these people and um and, and i suppose i realize i'm rambling on a bit here now but if i think about you know a, a client we sort of ultimately ended up dealing with where, where we were just the cultures didn't fit so the, the only way we could sort of agree was we are selling time so actually you know why don't we just tell you how long everything takes and you can choose whether you want that or not you know, and, you know, that takes that amount of time with that level of person doing it, therefore it costs that. And it just felt transactional. It was functional. It did what it did, but it didn't really get under the surface of what are we trying to alter here? It was just about deliver what you say you deliver. Mm. I do think that we don't aim to be transactional in what we 
do for clients and uh, to be honest very few suppliers are aiming <laughs> it's to do not a great mission and, statement and that you have on your wall yeah we will do the bare basics very cheap um yeah some people have that but but very few b2b suppliers i think have that desire and sometimes that is what some clients want and that's perfectly legitimate one of the things i, I find quite interesting is if you if you go to sainsbury's what I do and what I think most people do is if you look in your trolley, some things will be taste of difference and some things will be basics. Other supermarkets are available and also have similar ranges. Some things will be, you know, the normal Sainsbury's product. So sort of three categories of, of cost to quality, if you like. And depending on the thing you're yeah. buying, you make different decisions about whether you want the taste of difference one or the basics one. I think that basically applies to everything. So some people want the taste of difference research product and some people want the basics research product. And that's OK. Um, it's, it's just making sure that as a supplier, you offer the right things to the right people in the right way. Yeah. And them understanding which ones they want and why they why they want them. OK, well, th- thank you all very much for listening. If you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at TLFresearch.com. Goodbye, everyone.